Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellero. And this week, my guest is astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. Clay, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Good to be here again. You were on our March 10th show, and we chatted about your astronomy career and your interest in music and art. Uh, and we also got into a little bit about your comet and near-Earth object studies. Um, but we ran out of time, and I promised to have you back on the show uh, to talk about um, some follow-up items. But for the listeners, in case this is the first time you've caught the show Background Mode with Dr. Sherrod, I want to give you a quick introduction. Um, your astronomical studies began in 1970 with the Arkansas Sky, Inc., your private nonprofit and educational research and education program. Although now retired, the work, the publications, and the outreach from you via the Arkansas Sky Observatory is now greater than ever and ranks among the top in the private nonprofit smaller facilities. In addition, you're well known for your innovative instrumentation and adaption of conventional telescopes for advanced use by amateur and professional astronomers. You're a consultant and designer of scientific and astronomical instruments for major corporations worldwide, and you've been a native of Arkansas your entire life. So that's Dr. Sherrod in a nutshell. That's, that sums me up pretty well. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. Briefly, uh, in the last show, we touched on the uh, elegant and essential and the proper relationship between religion and science. That's a whole subject in itself. Major books have been written on that. But this episode, uh, we agreed to talk about your latest book, uh, Human Population and the Case for Global Warming. And I'm fascinated by uh, the science of this, and uh, because I have a physics background, I can read these documents with some understanding. And so when I read through your book, I thought, well, we've got to talk about this. So folks, buckle up and uh, be prepared to get your science hat on, because we're going to talk about just pure science. Welcome, and glad to have you back. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully our conversation will be uh, pure science uh, worded and presented in such a form that uh, people, you know, with, without you know, a directional degree in specific areas can understand what we're talking about because this entire concept of climate change, it really involves every single one of us in our future generations. Yeah, and the science is a tricky subject because it takes years. I know I worked on a Ph.D. program myself, and it takes years and years and years. I started off in high school and taking German and science and mathematics and spent the next two decades, essentially, preparing to be a scientist. It takes a long, long time, and there's an enormous wealth of literature, and there's an enormous number of people working on science and they accumulate a body of literature, and this goes back a long, long time. So one of the things we have to remember is, is that there's more data here that we're going to talk about and more wealth of information and more scientists and history than any one person can po possibly digest. You know, you know John, if I may interrupt, that's, sure. a, that's an excellent point. One of the things about science is that we learn, it's, I call it peer learning, you learn a specific subject or subjects and you, you become occupied with it and you, 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 you develop or you assimilate as much as you possibly can know. And then suddenly you realize you're standalone. This science <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean anything 
without being able to incorporate with other sciences that are equally important toward a subject that really needs attention. Climate change is one of those things that I have been fortunate over the past 50 years to be able to spend a lot of time in many, many different avenues of science and realizing that, hey, this all comes together. Uh, we need to be looking at a big picture and making a sphere of all the scientific knowledges concentrating on the core of that sphere, which is our existence on a planet that may be in alarming trouble at this time. Yeah, indeed. And it takes a, a, a long time to accumulate this information and digest it and then present it. And the problem is, is that as human beings, our ability to absorb information is limited. Uh, our scientific training sometimes is not very ex extensive. We're not accustomed to the nomenclature. Uh, people talk in strange terms. Uh, they use temperature methods, uh, temperature systems that we're not familiar with, perhaps, unless we're from Europe, uh, like Celsius mm -hmm. and, and other technological terms. And it can seem overwhelming. And unless you have a history of studying it and you've been plowed through some books and plowed through some papers and you have a long, long experience studying, you're really kind of at the whim of what people say authoritatively. And you have That's to decide true. to trust the science and the scientist or to trust your own opinion about the matter. And I think that's the source of some of the problems we're having. Well, it's the major source because opinion means objectivity. Uh, you have to be open to uh, you. You can't just uh, carte blanche say that this is wrong because this is not the way that I think. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the grass Tyson says the universe doesn't care what you think. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, you have to be willing to accept not just change, but the idea that maybe even though it's preposterous to my political beliefs or preposterous to my uh, uh, religious, theological or personal beliefs, maybe there is something to this. And when you're looking at, at, at major um, uh, a combined focus like, like climate change or, or many of the other subjects that I study, you really need to have to retune your objectivity and be more objective to what the science does suggest to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dig into the book. You start with the premise that uh, only humans can control their destiny. We're the only animal on the planet who understands that we are mortal, understands that we have a fate, and is aware of our self-conscious of our own existence and our control of our destiny. So Very we've important. Been given this intellectual and physical ability as a gift, and we're using it for, uh, for lots of different reasons and purposes. We are the only species, John, and, and to your listeners, that can control our own destiny. We can literally control our own extinction. There's no, a raccoon can't do that, mm. a tree. Nothing else in the biological realm can possibly control its own extinction, and, and particularly purposely. We purposely, mentally, logically can actually adapt our environment, adapt our existence uh, to, uh, to, to a, an extinction course. And uh, for some reason, uh, unknowingly, uh, subconsciously possibly, maybe genetically there's something in the code, we seem to be hell-bent on uh, developing a pathway for the human race that disregards all of other biology and disregards the fact that we live in a finite world. It is not limitless. The resources are not limitless. And our time on Earth, particularly, is not limitless. That's part of we, human psychology. We look around, we can only see a few thousand meters in our space on a clear day. 
That's absolutely right. And so we tend to think of our, our universe as what we can see instead of the holistic uh, planet. I think there's no other way to look at it. We live in a finite body. We have a finite brain with finite synapses that fire. And we are we are driven by what we subconsciously and uh, 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 in, not independently are able to. We, we are not able to control a lot of these types of thinking and thoughts and processes that take place. You know, we have processes in our bodies that we do not control. Because the body itself knows more about how to sustain itself than we do logically in conscious thought. Subconsciously, we're able to to adapt a lot of things, make things better for ourselves, which is what we were doing up to a point. From the by accident, say- by accident, because we were not a uh, significantly sufficiently advanced technological species, and so we survived by accident of our. Birth, we did. By, our, by our birth and being native to this planet. That's right. That's right. And the planet has supported us very well up to this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's important it for took, everybody. It took four and a half billion years for the planet to get to the point where it could sustain the kind of life it sustains. That's right. Look at the planet like a, a filling station, a gas station. Uh, that planet, you know, you're used to going to your neighborhood gas station and pumping gas into your car. And you're happy as a lark until the day that you show up and you're, you know, the gas pumps are empty. It says no no gas. Well, someone had to bring a tanker truck to put gas into, that, in, into the tanks mm-hmm. underneath where you put gas in your car. The same thing with the earth. The earth has to be replenished. And it would replenish itself naturally if... We didn't have the demand for the resources that we currently have. And this is where the problem really lies. You know, we have all this power that we have. Yes, Some people would claim that there is a commensurate responsibility with that power. That's something that we're not necessarily mindful of. We're in a society where, with the politics the way they are and big blockbuster superhero movies the way they are, we see a lot of emphasis on power, but we don't see a lot of corresponding emphasis on responsibility of that power. Yes, we are looking at a lot of fiction, and we have a generation of people that sometimes, and it seems sort of alarmingly to me at least, uh, our, our upcoming generations are having a big difficulty differentiating between what is fiction and what is fact. And a lot of times we are, we, we are presented fiction uh, through social media and through, through movies, through uh, video games, that we really begin to have a hard time differentiating. Is that something really that happened or is it something that was part of one of these fictional uh, processes that I was exposed to? It's like a dream. Many times people wake up from a dream state and they have to ask themselves the question, was that a dream or did that really happen? And not to mention historical fiction, like uh, yes, semi, yeah. semi-documentary, semi-fictional stories about Apollo 13, for example, which are not Absolutely. necessarily an exact history of what happened. Sometimes there's dramatic license taken. Yes, to make it more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on here. Um, so, when in your book, you talk about sources to draw upon. There's a lot of information and sources that scientists draw upon. Uh, and you see them spoken of in piecemeal uh, occasionally because that's all we can digest in a 500 or 800-word article. But there's an entire picture and an entire story of this planet. And I'd like to kind of step through some of those and comment on those. 
we need to we really need to try to understand all the processes that alarm people like me into thinking that there is something to climate change. I'm avoiding global warming because that's got a bad uh, aura over it at this time and will forever probably. But climate change is happening. And yes, climate change has naturally happened in the past. But the influence of the human race and the human activity on the planet has accelerated climate change to where these small natural processes are really pale by comparison to what we are doing as a human as, as a biological race on this planet. You know, global warming got a bad rap because it was politically poisonous, but it came about because there are temperature sensors and measurement systems all over the planet that have been recording temperatures for years. And, and what scientists just- do is they, they aggregate that data and take the average of all those reports from all right. those thousands and thousands of sensors that have been measuring temperatures over the last many, 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 many years. And you can Let see an interesting trend. Let me tell you an interesting fact very quickly. I, this is not off the agenda or our, our topic here. Uh, it just occurred to me. Uh, you speak of the, the sensors that we're watching. Temperature is a critical part. Global warming, te- climate change, of course you want temperature to be in, that, in the factors. But let's take Greenland, for example. The temperature sensors that have been in place recording temperature for the reason of understanding if, if we do have a climate change upon us, uh, that those were put into place in, in terms of precision about the time that the ice cap on Greenland started melting. Greenland now has lost all but every bit of its ice sheet coverage. And you can't deny that there are factors involved in it. it it's sea temperature. It's, it's air temperature, which is what we were talking about just before. Air temperature, it's carbon dioxide, it's toxic greenhouse gases that kept the air to keep it from cooling at night like it should, or cooling in September and seasonally like the polar caps have to do, that has caused the demise of the Greenland ice sheet. Thing, very small things like this have all taken place since we started recording temperature. But it is a multifactored, almost a dozen factors that enter into the, the entire climate change uh, situation, almost every single one of them caused by, by overpopulation. Can I list them? I can't promise we'll get to every one of them, but I'd like to make, I'd just like to verbalize the list. Let's try to shoot and I'll answer short answers, okay? The average temperature of the air and the ocean. Gone up almost two degrees. The salinity and the acidity of oceans affecting animal and plant life. That's going up rapidly because of our pollution of the oceans. And just recently, we've seen about all the plastic that's going into the oceans. Oh, no, the plastic's not poison, but it's poisoning small animals, large animals who die in the ocean. That does poison the ocean. Those, those creatures within the ocean are, are critical to keep the balance of the, of the water in the oceans where it needs to be for the oceans to be effective cleansers of the rest of the planet. Go ahead. I believe there are small animals in the ocean, krill and plankton, that are generating oxygen. Yes. And they're Uh, dying off. Yes, and the krill and the plankton that are vital food sources for some of the larger animals who contribute more to the balance of the oceans and the lands as well. Right. Um, The loss of Arctic and Antarctic ice. There is this meme that on an Arctic ice melts, it doesn't raise the sea level, and that's correct. But ice that was on land, like in Greenland, Alaska, and Antarctica, 
no longer does on land, and now that water is in the ocean. That does raise the sea level, so we should be it, careful to watch for that. It does, and the, the it's, it's more important than just ice and water. The the all of the ice, the permafrost on the planet has in the past served as a reflector for the sunlight that the Earth receives. It's called the albedo. It's the called the albedo. of the Earth, right? That's right. And the Earth has an albedo of about 0.3, which means that it reflects uh, about 30% of the, of the heat that it receives from the sun and, and absorbs the rest of it. And the drop in the albedo, consider 12%. Let's say that we lost the entire southern ice cap, Antarctica, and it no longer reflected sunlight. If that were to occur, the warmth that the Earth's surface and oceans would absorb would be about 12% higher than it presently is. With that type of rise in, in, in temperature of the oceans and air, you would have a much more rapid evaporative uh, index of the oceans and the waters of the earth, the rivers, lakes, so forth. We can't have that because it, if it evaporates too fast, the ocean levels actually would drop. And the, the, the water cycle, which we're all familiar with from, from uh, middle school, uh, the, the water cycle is interrupted. The, the recycling of the water that we depend on for potable water for human consumption drops rapidly when the ice when, when the water cycle slows down, which it does with the loss of albedo. Plus, the warmer air is able to hold more moisture, and so that melting ice. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe told me that it goes eighty percent into the atmosphere and twenty percent into sea level rise. So yes. the lack of sea level rise can be deceptive, and then you turn around and you see the flooding of the rivers. And the tremendous rainstorms that we've been having, and because that the atmosphere can hold that moisture more, and then it dumps it in sporadic places. Venus is a good example. The planet right next to us. Venus is a twin sister planet of Earth. Same size, same same criteria, same raw materials, and it has the same amount of water. Uh, the albedo of Venus is almost 100%. It's up around 0.9%, meaning that it reflects almost every bit of the sunlight. That uh, not 0.9%, uh, 0.9. Yes. And, and that means that it's incredibly hotter inside. The, the sunlight enters Venus's atmosphere, which is locked into place simply because the, the, the surface temperatures are so hot that it cannot rain on Venus. There's plenty of moisture. There's plenty of water to rain, but it never can because of the cycle is interrupted, the, the water cycle that I just discussed. Venus will never rain. If it could, it would have oceans. It has basins for oceans. And maybe at some time in the prehistoric past, it did have oceans. And the reason that the albedo is so high and the reflectivity of the cloud is simply because of the cloud layers. The cloud layers, as she mentioned, have, have increased drastically because of greenhouse gases, which uh, H2O, water, is one of them, has, has formed in, in, in the nature of clouds, and it is locking heat underneath it. It's yeah, but it's also reflecting more sunlight. The more cloudy the sky is, the more reflective the atmosphere is. So there's a little bit of offset going on. And, and we, yes, and we do have we do have a situation where, you know, if it could rain on Venus, it would cool the entire planet down. It's too close to the sun for that to happen. But the same thing on a smaller scale could easily happen on Earth because of this evaporative index and more clouds being in the atmosphere. They will trap the heat. Right. So we will have an increase in temperature just from an increase in the percentage of cloud density. So those are some of the items that get thrown at us, and hardly ever, unless you read a textbook on climate change, do you ever get exposed to those items expressed in detail and explained in detail 
one by one in a thorough explanation. And all we get is bits and pieces in the news uh, that uh, tends not to be the whole picture. And it's a Hollywood movie. It, it, yeah. it does it doesn't sound factual, but the, in, in the bottom line of the uh, of the polar ice loss, John, is uh, since 2004 we have lost 127 gigatons of polar ice. Oh uh, well, a lot of people say, "Well, okay, well that's fresh water. We should well that takes care of our ice." Our, <laughs> no, which it doesn't. Is, we have a dilution factor that go, that comes into place immediately. You cannot drink uh, brackish water. Uh, you know you can drink salt water. If this water gets into the oceans, which it does through migratory waterways as well as direct depositing into the oceans, that 127 gigatons is no longer suitable for human consumption. Well, we've went, we went through the list of items uh, in the next part of the show. I want to ask you about some of the more uh, impactful things of the of global climate change. But first, we have to take a commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI-CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com bgm. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with astronomer Dr. Clay Sherrod. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is that we need some sort of handle or visual image that helps us digest uh, the effects that are going on. And a couple of them have been discussed recently. You talk in your book about how the two polar caps of the Earth have been dubbed the air conditioning of Mother Earth. And now we've recently heard that the Amazon rainforest is considered the lungs of the Earth, producing 20% of the planet's oxygen. So we're mindful a little bit more now of the sort of the more direct language uh, and impactful terminology that we can relate to. Let me give you some let me give you some some hard details here as quickly as I possibly can. Very important. Um, we really don't have very much fresh groundwater. We have declining forests, and now with the rainforests, for example, are on fire. They were already depleted. Let me tell you what a tree does for us. Every single hardwood tree, a deciduous tree, let's say a huge hickory tree, a beautiful ash tree, that provides 260 cubic feet of oxygen for us every year. Two of those trees... Two trees, no matter where they are, can supply a family of four for one year with enough oxygen to sustain our lives. 
They provide the trees, the rainforest used to provide over 20 percent of all the oxygen used by humans. We've been hearing that a whole lot on the news the last week. That number is going to drop rapidly if something is not done. I don't mean put the fires out. I mean the consumption of the, of the, the rainforests around the world. In 1700 A.D., we had 10 trillion hardwoods on the earth. By 2000, that had dropped by 3 trillion hardwoods. Where do you think that drop came from? It didn't come from lightning. It didn't come from Mother Nature. Just Lumbering. Lumber. That's right. Not only that, but to, to build a house, you have to typically tear down trees to build a house. You have to tear down trees to put a road and a driveway going up to that house. You have to remove trees to build highways. You have to mo- remove trees to make a parking lot at your place of work or the places where you shop. We've consumed five billion trees since we started building homes out of lumber. It makes me think that there's a lot of science and a lot of technology and R&D to be done to figure out ways to use structural materials that can be obtained readily and handily and cheaply, uh, besides wood. Uh, Recycle facilities, uh, technologies that generate energy that that don't produce carbon dioxide. There's a lot of work to be done, don't you think? Absolutely. And the work, you know, we try to do the work and then you have, uh, uh, for some reason, people are on one side or the other. This is a waste of time and money or this is something we really need to do. And and, and the, those people seem to act like they don't realize the amount of research that's already been done. What we really need is for the human race to pay attention to some of these details and realize that we we're not running out of water. We're always having the same amount of water on planet. It's it's a renewable resource, but water has to cycle to be potable. In order for us to be able to have drinking water for our consumption, for our baths to flush our toilets, every bit of that has to recycle. It has to go through the process. And there's so many people on the planet right now, almost eight billion. We'll we'll hit that mark in a couple of years. That we the the water cycle can't keep up with us and our increases of population. We consume 60 billion gallons of water, 60 billion, every single day. Fresh and water. it takes fresh water. And right. it takes sewage processing plants, septic tanks. It takes Mother Nature years to recycle that water to where it's once again consumable so that we can consume another 600 billion per day. You know, listen to the facts, people, please, because it is... The, the life expectancy of the human being is going up remarkably. In 1880, John, life expectancy was age 40. If you lived to be 40, you were an old man. Today, it's 80. We have doubled our life expectancy. That just that, that simply leaves more people on the earth for a longer period of time. You have life expectancy. You have an exponential. It's not any longer, but at one point from 1880 up, it was, it was an exponential population increase. And then you have a lower mortality rate because of health and, and advances in, in medical science. So it, that, all that's fine and dandy. I don't want to give up my place on the planet, and neither do you nor any listeners. But we have to be responsible in terms of population. Population of the human race is the key. The, the increase of population has resulted in the extinction of millions of species on the planet since the late 1800s. 
Most of them we don't see. They could be bacterial. They could be plant life that we just don't see around. A lizard, you know, a spotted salamander in a cave somewhere. But we have caused the extinction of a lot of these species. We do use the resources without replenishing them. It's very, very hard at this point in our development here in 2019 and approaching 2020, going green, I'm sorry, is simply not enough. The Green New Deal is not enough. You can't put corks in enough cows to stop the problem. There's a noted congressman who says that the scope of the solution must match the scope of the problem. I love that. Yes, absolutely. There you go. There you go. And we we simply don't, we cannot do that. Uh, A statement was made politically not more than a month ago that when someone takes office, the first step they were going to take is to completely eliminate the use of all fossil fuels. You can't do that. I don't like using fossil fuels any more than anyone else. And yes, it is a source of the major part of the pollution. But you can't just quit. You have to have an alternative. You have to have something besides solar energy and wind energy. Granted, these are great steps forward. But it's to produce, for example, an electric car, you've got to have fossil fuels to produce the car and to produce the electricity that you power the car with. We're not to that step yet. We haven't developed the technology. The technology is out there. And as you and I discussed in our last show, physics is changing. We're at the threshold of, of, of new physics. Within the next 25 years, some youngster listening hopefully today is going to wake up one morning and he's going to be, his brain is going to have the aha moment and he's going to say, we're using the wrong old antiquated physics. Here's what we need to be doing. And that may solve a lot of these problems, but we don't have that person working with us yet. I'd like we, to see nuclear fusion get off the ground a little faster. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to be responsible about that. We need to start thinking in terms of, of, of solutions like that. Uh, you know, we people look at, the, uh, for example, uh, a nuclear power plant and it scares them to death. Uh, it, it shouldn't. Uh, it's, it, it's certainly safer than what we're doing to ourselves right now using fossil fuels and our alternatives to energy at this particular time. We, can, we dig anyone who doubts that we're just absolutely ruining this earth, for, even from just an aesthetical point, not just from an ecological point. Just look at the great coal mines, the open pits in the western states of the United States. Look at the rainforests and what's happened to them. Fly over these great places and look at the holes in the ground and the landscape that's just been absolutely uh, 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 poisoned to where it can't grow anything but, uh, like here in Arkansas, a pine tree. I see log trucks here in Arkansas. It's our number one industry. You could go from here to the closest town, 20 miles, out past 30 and 40 log trucks of little forests, and the logs on those trucks are getting smaller and smaller. They're transporting sticks to the paper mills and sticks to the to the lumber mills. They we're running out of forests. One of the things that happens as a result of climate change is a stress on the planet's resources in terms of human influence. Uh, migration patterns change. People flee tremendously hot areas, uh, food production is uh, affected. Um, that's going to produce political tensions down the road, don't you think? It's, it's, uh, John, it's going to be huge. It already is creating political tensions. Uh, I, I see very soon 
uh, an equatorial shift, and what I, uh, that, that's my term. These equatorial shifts are shifts in the, in the uh, desert belts of the world. Desert belts can crop up from time to time pretty much anywhere, as we see, we've seen in uh, Zimbabwe. We've seen it in, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other, uh, uh, where we had horrible uh, uh, a number of deaths and starvation due to, uh, to uh, drought. Uh, th- these belts shift from time to time, and these people, if they can, they will flee. But, you know, you look at this earth, and it, it takes several acres to support one person. And what are you going to do when all that land is used up or it's, it's covered in concrete or it's, um, or it's, it's uh, been depleted of all its trees? We have swamps that cover 2,800 cubic miles. Those swamps, you can't live in that. Uh, there's, just, there's just so many places that people can live. Another thing that we're seeing is, is that a warmer climate supports longer um, cycles for certain insects that can be dangerous. Absolutely, yes. Uh, we're seeing uh, sharks move into the inland waters where there's better food supply and they're more in proximity to humans. Uh, so the animal life is uh, in some ways both competing with us and then uh, adversely affecting us Most of the climate changes. That's right. Most of those creatures, John, require the same type of conditions that we do. We have 197 million square miles of dry land on the planet that is suitable for habitation. That's only 29% of our planet. And of that, only 33%, a third of it, can be used for habitation because of desert. So that, you know, that, re- that reduces our habitable land to 131 million square miles. Anyway, go through the math and, and, and all of that. And you're, you're left with eight acres per person uh, worldwide. Eight acres per each individual, if you spread us all out. That's the space that's required to raise seven cows. That's what it takes. A farmer will tell you it takes seven to eight acres to raise seven cows, about an acre per cow. Now that you know, that's the kind of reality that I want people to read my book and realize when they see it. I did not write this book for a profit. The money's going to to support whatever we can support to change some of this situation. Uh, I wrote the book to expose to put this together in a form that the average person can look at it and say, you know what, we really do have a problem, and I am part of the problem because I am a consumer. I'm not a provider. I do nothing. John, we die, and we have our bodies cremated, and we, we, we buy an expensive casket, casket made out of, out, of, out of earth resources, and we bury it in the ground and take up a plot of land that will be used for nothing else in the future. Um, I, you know, I'm all for proper funerals. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to be cremated myself, and hopefully my ashes will do some good somewhere. But we don't even, in death, we don't even contribute to the cycle. <laughs> it's like the three laws of thermodynamics. You can't win, you can't break even, you can't even get out of the game. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we were running out of time. We only have a minute or two left. Um, so um, let's think about closing thoughts here. Uh, what, what do you think is the number one thing on the survival agenda? Is it carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Is that the number one thing we should be talking about and working towards? Well, the very remember we talked about the trees and how those two trees can give us enough oxygen. Yeah, planting trees. Well, yeah, that's right. 
Well, those same trees, they soak up the carbon dioxide, which is a problem. By cutting down the trees, the only natural filter the earth has, we're eliminating that. So we're adding double to the problem. We're, we're, we're the one thing that, that can help us as far as the, the greenhouse gases are the deciduous trees and plants of the earth. And we're cutting them down. So are we getting, too optimistic about our technology, or are there some people? Yes. I'm just yes, curious. Are there some people who think that maybe it, one day science will save us, and there will uh, be these it, giant machines absorbing carbon dioxide? If we, have, <laughs> if we have more time, yes. We, we could, uh, our technology is wonderful. The human mind is terrific. But we really have reached a tipping point where we've almost waited too late. I lectured on climate change in 1970. I traveled around the country. I gave as many as eight presentations a week to colleges, universities, civic groups about it. They thought I was absolutely crazy. They enjoyed what I, and, and, and we patted each other on the back after the presentation was over with, and they, they, they liked what I had to say. But in 1970, oh, that doesn't relate to me. That's such far. That's so, I was talking, you know, all oh, the year 2025, look out, we're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. It's 2025 coming up on us. And I think our apathy is what's killing us. We really need to get serious about this and uh, don't poo-poo the science. Support the science. Read instead of just automatically saying, oh, it's not happening. Climate change is, is, a, is a hoax. No, it's not. It's really not. If it's not affecting you now, it's going to affect you pretty soon because of, again, Hollywood, social media. We have gotten into an age where the average human, particularly our younger humans, think they're immortal. They can't be killed off. Yeah, gonna, every young person believes they're immortal. It's, it's, a, it's an enduring problem. <laughs> so it's a natural barrier about uh, keeping them from accepting the fact that something like overpopulation and climate change is a real threat to your own existence. And certainly, if not yours, I've got grandchildren. A lot of your listeners do, too. I've got children. I want to see my children make it to old age. Some of them are getting close. I want to see my grandchildren grow up and have families of their own. But I tell you what, the, the closer it becomes, the more worried I am. Scientists are not supposed to worry. We're supposed to solve. And we discover and we help solve problems. I've looked at this, John. I've looked at it now for uh, 55 years. I don't see a solution anymore. I think we've passed the tipping point. And I, I, I'm not a pessimist at all. I'm probably one of the worst, most, most staunchest uh, optimists about all things, and particularly about the human mind and the human uh, uh, accomplishment. Spirit. But, uh, the spirit. There you go. Exactly the spirit, because that's what drives us. Well, I'm hopeful, too. Um, but we're just going to have to see how this pans out. In the meantime, I recommend that you read, listeners out there, read as much as you can. Read authoritative sources from people that are experienced and knowledgeable in the field, like Dr. Sherrod and Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and other reliable technical sources. There are plenty of them out there that tell you what the real science is, that people have been working hard for years, for decades, to accumulate this data and analyze it. It's not just their scientific opinion. It's, it's facts. And we'll have to follow the facts. And as that young woman said, who just crossed the Atlantic from Sweden, follow the science. The science will tell you what's going on. And that's the objective truth. So with that, we're going to have to close the show. I want to thank you, Dr. Sherrod, for joining me on Background Mode. It's been great. Thank you for having me so much. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Uh, they can contact me easily at my website. It's uh, uh, 
arksky.org, A-R-K-S-K-Y dot O-R-G. And people are free to contact me by email. Can I give them an email address? Sure. It's uh, D-R-C-L-A-Y at T Thomas Charlie TC Works dot net. Dr. Clay at TC Works dot net. I'd be happy to discuss it uh, with with anyone. Uh, and the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and through ArcSky.org. Uh, so they can uh, they can obtain a copy of the book. It's not the book a big is book. human population in the case for global warming by Dr. Clay Sherrod. So we yeah. it's a good book. All Thank right, you, we're going to have to come to a close, folks. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.